Today on Lawfare No Bull. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on December 7th addressing the controversial topic of closing Guantanamo 20 years after the September 11th attacks. The committee heard from six witnesses, including Brigadier General John Baker, Chief Defense Counsel for Military Commissions, retired Major General Michael Leonard, Katia Justin, co-managing partner at Jenner and Block, Colleen Kelly, co-founder of 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director at the National Security Institute, and Charles Stimson of the Heritage Foundation. Theodore Dostoevsky is often quoted as saying that the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. For the last two decades, the most notorious prison in America has been Guantanamo. We know it today, and we knew it when the Senate Judiciary Committee held its first hearing on closing the detention center at Guantanamo in 2013, eight years and three administrations ago. I chaired that hearing as chairman of the Subcommittee on Constitution, Civil Rights, and Human Rights. At the time, many senior military officials, national security experts, and lawmakers on both sides of the aisles agreed that it was far past time to close Guantanamo Bay. It saddens me that this hearing today is even necessary. The story of Guantanamo is a story of a nation that lost its way. It is a story of unspeakable abuse and indefinite detention without charge or trial. Elements that are just counterintuitive when you consider our constitutional values. And it's a story of justice delayed and denied again and again and again. Not only for detainees, but also for the victims of 9-11 and their loved ones. Before we get started, I'd like to share some of these stories with the following video. First, I'd like to end Guantanamo. I'd like it to be over with. If it was up to me, I would close Guantanamo, not tomorrow, but this afternoon. I'd close it. What is the moral superiority of the United States of America if we torture prisoners? According to President Bush, by his second term, the detention facility had become a propaganda tool for our enemies and a distraction for our allies. Our 42 retired military leaders wrote the leadership of the Senate Armed Services Committee and forcefully argued for the closure of this facility, stating that there is near unanimous agreement from our nation's top military, intelligence, and law enforcement leaders. Close Guantanamo. Close Guantanamo. Close Guantanamo now. Our enemies act without conscience. We must not. Nearly 20 years after the attacks on 9-11, the long wait for justice continues. The CIA has admitted to subjecting Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to repeated waterboarding, a technique that simulates drowning. Majid Khan claims he was sexually assaulted and nearly drowned by his CIA interrogators, who he said threatened to rape his sister. The detainee's treatment has been a major impediment to resolving the remaining Guantanamo cases. In his statement, Khan also cast doubt on the effectiveness of the CIA program. Nothing the interrogators were doing was effective. Whenever I was being tortured, I told them what I thought they wanted to hear. For the survivors and family members of the victims, it's a process that has taken far too long. Justice delayed is justice denied, and now we're 20 years later with no justice. My son gave his life, and it does not honor him that we violate our Constitution in retaliation for what happened on September 11th. 
We have a constitution, we have a bill of rights, and it applies to all persons. The stories of torture that have come out of Guantanamo and CIA black sites around the world are shocking and shameful. One detainee whom we saw in the video, Majid Khan, recently testified during his sentencing hearing before a jury of high-ranking, active-duty U.S. military officials. During his testimony, Mr. Khan detailed the torture that he suffered at the hands of the United States government, including waterboarding and sexual abuse. When Mr. Khan's testimony concluded, seven of the eight jurors signed a handwritten letter recommending clemency. Now make no mistake, Mr. Khan should be held accountable for his actions. But as the members of the jury wrote eloquently, and I quote, Mr. Khan has been held without the basic due process under the U.S. Constitution. He was subjected to physical and psychological abuse well beyond approved enhanced interrogation techniques, instead being closer to torture performed by the most abusive regimes in modern history. This abuse was of no practical value in terms of intelligence or any other tangible benefit to U.S. interests. I might note, as I said earlier, seven of eight jurors wrote this handwritten letter to the court. All of them were career U.S. military officials. For nearly 20 years, 20 years, the detention facility at Guantanamo has defied our constitutional values and the rule of law. Today, we live in a world in which the war in Afghanistan, our nation's longest war, has finally come to a close, and yet Guantanamo remains open. 39 detainees remain, and more than two-thirds of them have never been charged with a crime. Let that sink in. Two-thirds have never been charged in 20 years. How can that possibly be justice? The other 12 detainees are in a military commission system that has failed time and again, in sharp contrast to our criminal justice system. For instance, the case against alleged 9-11 co-conspirators who were detained in Guantanamo has never gone to trial more than 20 years after the attack. There is no end in sight for these military commissions. They will not provide justice or closure that the families of those who died on 9-11 deserve. At the same time, since 9-11, the Department of Justice has successfully prosecuted nearly 1,000 individuals on terrorism-related charges, and they have been securely detained by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. We can and we must do better. President Biden transferred his first detainee in July, but at that pace, one detainee every 10 months, there will be dozens of detainees at Guantanamo even if President Biden is elected to a second term. To finally close this facility, we need to take a new approach. Senator Leahy and I sent a letter to President Biden in April with 22 of our colleagues, including eight members of this committee, laying out the key steps the administration should take to close the prison. Getting this done will demand strong and effective leadership from the White House, as well as a special envoy at the State Department to negotiate transfer agreements for the detainees who are not charged with crimes. And it will demand swift and decisive action from the Justice Department which has yet to bring its legal positions in line with the president's goal of closing Guantanamo. In July, I sent a letter to Attorney General Garland urging him to revisit the Justice Department's defense of the government's authority to indefinitely hold detainees without charge or trial and without due process at Guantanamo. I'm disappointed 
Disappointed that the President and Attorney General have yet to respond to my letters. And I'm disappointed the administration declined to send a witness to testify at today's hearing on how they're working to close Guantanamo. I'm going to continue to press this administration to take action and to end this injustice. The delays in closing this facility are not cheap in terms of our reputation and in terms of our treasury. Every day Guantanamo retains, remains open, damages our moral standing and credibility, weakens our national security, and wastes taxpayers' dollars. How much does Guantanamo cost us? $540 million every year to keep it open. $540 million for 39 detainees. Worse yet, as I mentioned earlier, Guantanamo has failed to deliver justice to families who deserve it the most. One of those family members is with us today. I want to thank Ms. Colleen Kelly. I want to thank her because she's here today making a sacrifice to appear. And of course, she comes to us as a person who lost her younger brother, Bill, in the 9-11 attack. Thanks for your courage and your willingness to speak before the committee. Families like yours deserve better. It's time for us to live up to the ideals our troops risk their lives to defend every day. It's time at long last to set partisanship aside and work together to close the detention facility at Guantanamo. I'll now turn to Senator Grassley for his opening remarks. Today we have 35 men in the Guantanamo Bay. They include the mastermind of September 11th attack, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and the mastermind of the attack on the U.S. S. Cole, uh, Anashir Kassam and Nashir are being prosecuted for their crimes in front of a military commission. In 2010, under President Obama, the current National Security Division Assistant Attorney General Matt Olson led a review of the 240 detainees still in Guantanamo at that particular time. Only a small portion could be prosecuted due to legal and evidentiary challenges. Uh, some were set for transfer to other countries, and some were so dangerous that the task force recommended continued detention. President Biden has committed to closing Guantanamo by the end of his term. He is uh, not the first president to attempt to do so, but as the task force report explains, simply prosecuting or transferring a detainee uh, is not uh, an option in every case. Uh, Assistant Attorney General Olson is not here to say whether he has changed his conclusions about continuing law of war detention at Guantanamo. There is uh, no representative from the State Department to say what countries are newly able to provide adequate security for a transfer detainee. No one is here from the intelligence community, which has assessed that nearly 32% of the Guantanamo detainees are believed to have rejoined their war on the United States. The intelligence community isn't here to say that the top tier leaders still at Guantanamo are safe for release. No one from the administration has come to defend the president's plan to close uh, Guantanamo, and I'm not sure that there is a plan. Setting a goal, a policy goal, 
with no plan only invites disaster. Over the summer, we watched a no-plan approach unfold in Afghanistan. To meet a deadline by at the end of August, President Biden ordered an American withdrawal over warnings from his own senior advisors. I fear that his plan to withdraw from Guantanamo detention facility might be no different. In making decisions on whether on matters of national security, we must ask if a course of action make Americans more safe or less safe. Are we protecting the American people? Creating a potential safe haven for Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Afghanistan doesn't protect the American people. Bringing terrorists to the United States doesn't protect the American people. Releasing terrorists who will only seek to attack us again doesn't protect the American people. The safety of Americans is not the only question, though it is a top priority. Another question is that of accountability. I'd like to enter into the record a letter from Terry Strada. Terry is the mother of three who lost her husband, Tom, on 9-11. Today, she's an active member of the 9-11 Families United, which serves thousands of families and survivors of the 9-11 terrorist attack. She states that she and her family, and all of us, deserve justice for what happened. Like many victims, families, members, she believes that means staying the course at Guantanamo. I'd like to read from her letter, quote, that the war in Afghanistan has ended or that the new administration is in charge, none of that changes our needs to prompt justice for prompt justice. None of that changes our need for an accounting based on the evidence collected over the years, evidence that may not be available anywhere else. Rather than lose the opportunity to attain a modicum of justice for all those lost and all of us left behind, the military trial should continue to proceed under the guidelines of a military tribunal uh, uninterrupted and as swiftly as possible. The evidence amassed needs to be heard for justice to be served and this dreadful chapter of our lives to close, end of quote. The victims of terrorism are not just those that we lost in 9-11 like Terry's husband, Tom. Over 4,000 service members have given their lives in a war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. The veterans of those wars have given life and limb to protect Americans from terrorists like those at Guantanamo Bay. I hope we will honor that sacrifice. In October of 2021, uh, seven of eight U.S. military officers serving on Mr. Khan's military commission jury wrote a letter recommending that he receive clemency, and I just want to read what they wrote. Mr. Khan's abuse was of no practical value in terms of intelligence or any other tangible benefit to U.S. interests. Instead, it is a stain on the moral fiber of America. 
the treatment of Mr. Khan in the hands of U.S. personnel should be a source of shame for the United States government. So I am very concerned that things like this have in the past happened. I know firsthand about the isolation of the facility, and they can happen at any time. To me, it makes no sense to house our prisoners there whatsoever. And one of the things that I hoped many years ago when I went there was that we would have the ability to close down that facility. So I hope that this hearing may lead to that. We're now going to turn to our panel of witnesses. We are pleased to be joined today by Brigadier General John D. Baker, the Chief Defense Counsel for the Military Commission's Defense Organization. Uh, General Baker is going to be retiring at the end of this year after more than 32 years of service to our country. Thank you very much, General, for caring for America that way. Our first majority witness is Major General Michael Leonard, who served on active duty in the Marine Corps for 37 years. After 9-11, he served as the first Joint Task Force Commander at Guantanamo, where he was tasked with preparing the base to receive the first detainees who arrived on January 11, 2002. We will also hear from Colleen Kelly. Ms. Kelly is a family nurse practitioner from the Bronx, New York, the mother of three kids, co-founder of 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, Ms. Kelly's brother, Bill Kelly, lost his life in the North Tower on September 11, 2001. Last but certainly not least, Kataya, did I, is it Kataya or Katia? It's Katia. Katia. Katia Justin is co-managing partner at Jenner and & Block and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York. Ms. Justin was, has represented Majid Khan, a detainee at Guantanamo Bay, for over a decade. Ranking Member Grassley, would you like to introduce the minority witnesses? Professor Jaffer uh, currently serves as founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and is an assistant professor of law and director at the National Security Law and Policy Program at the Scalia Law School, George Mason University. Professor Jaffer previously served as chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senior Counsel to the House Intelligence Committee, Associate Counsel to President George W. Bush, and Counsel to Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the U.S. Department of Justice. Mr. Charles Stimson uh, is a Deputy Director at the Edwin Meese uh, Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and Manager of the National Security Law Program at the Heritage Foundation. Before joining uh, uh, the foundation in 2007, Mr. Stimson served as Deputy Assistant Attorney, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Detainee Affairs. He advised then Secretaries of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and Robert Gates and coordinated the Pentagon's global detention policy operations, including at Guantanamo Bay and Iraq and Afghanistan. Mr. Stimson has also served as a military prosecutor, defense counsel, and uh, recently served as deputy uh, chief judge, Navy Marine Corps trial judiciary. He continues to serve with the rank of captain as commanding officer of the preliminary hearing unit. Thank you both for coming. Uh, General Baker, will you proceed with your opening statement, please? 
I thank Chairman Derman and the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee for inviting me to testify today. I'd like to emphasize at the outset that I'm testifying solely as the Chief Defense Counsel for the Military Commission's Defense Organization and, on, and not on behalf of any accused. Moreover, to be clear, the views that I am about to express do not reflect the views of the United States, the Department of Defense, or any Defense Department agency other than my own. My views do reflect, however, 32 years of service in the United States Marine Corps as a supply officer and as a judge advocate, including as a prosecutor and as a military judge. As you noted, I, do, I retire at the end of this year after six and a half years as the Chief Defense Counsel for the Military Commissions. The title of this hearing is Closing Guantanamo, Ending 20 Years of Injustice. Because my authority is limited to oversight of the Military Commission's defense function and not on other detention operations, I will not address the issue of closing Guantanamo. However, I can and I will speak to ending 20 years of injustice. The only path to ending injustice in the Military Commissions for the defendants, for the country, and above all, for the victims is to bring these military commissions to as rapid a conclusion as possible. Notice I don't say as just a conclusion as possible. It is too late in the process for the current military commissions to do justice for anyone. The best that can be hoped more than 20 years after the crimes were committed is to bring this sordid chapter of American history to an end. And that end can, can only come through resolutions negotiated in good faith by the parties. Whatever the intentions, no one today can seriously argue that the military commissions in Guantanamo have been anything but a failed experiment. In their almost 20 years of existence, under four different presidents, the military commissions have produced one final conviction. To be sure, there have been seven other convictions, but three were overturned in their entirety, and the other four have not completed the appeals process. The victims have waited 20 years in vain to see justice done. The 9-11 conspiracy was originally charged in 2008, almost 14 years ago, and there is no date set for trial. The fact that the military commissions have been unable to bring the men charged with the worst criminal act in United States history to trial 20 years after the fact is alone enough to indict the system as a failure. In fact, none of the active cases have a trial date set. These delays are a direct result of the government's decisions that have corrupted the process from the outset and have made legitimate convictions and fair sentences virtually impossible. The ultimate source of the Commission's problem is their original sin, torture. The United States chose to secretly detain and torture the men it now seeks to punish. This torture impacts and undermines every aspect of these prosecutions. More specifically, the government's fear that the truth will become public is what has been the most destructive to a fair process. And the government has effectively refused even to disavow its use of torture by adopting morally indefensible positions, like arguing for the admissibility of torture-derived evidence in pretrial proceedings. As I discuss in my written testimony, there are a multitude of flagrant and potentially reversible legal violations infecting the Commission's cases that I don't have time to discuss here. But it is on the basis of this record with these sorts of due process errors baked in, that federal appeals courts will decide whether the military commission's defendants received a fair trial and whether their sentences, including any death sentence, can be allowed to stand. Even if these, pre even if these proceedings were otherwise fair, 
which they manifestively, manifestively have not been, or if the defendants had not been tortured cruelly by the United States, which they were, it is unconscionable that the government is gambling closure for the victims, along with extraordinary resources and endless delays in an attempt to obtain such fragile verdicts and dubious death sentences. The more humane route for all parties is negotiating resolutions that give the victims at least a modicum of justice and the closure they deserve now. I will conclude on a more optimistic note by assuring you that as long as the military commissions remain open, the military commissions defense organizations defense teams will continue to be the voice for justice at Guantanamo Bay. Thank you, General. Ms. Colleen Kelly. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Durbin. Ranking Member Grassley, members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to share my story. I'm a family nurse practitioner in the Bronx, New York, and the mother of three grown children. My younger brother, Bill, was killed in the North Tower of the World Trade Center on September 11th. Bill was 30 years old and starting to really come into his own. He was a decent chef, bartender, an ever-hopeful duck hunter, and a guy as comfortable in surfing shorts as in a business suit. Bill worked at Bloomberg Tradebook, and his four sisters would fight over who got to be Bill's date at the annual holiday party. Bill didn't work at the Trade Center. He happened to be there for a conference that he had repeatedly asked his boss for permission to attend. Bill's boss acquiesced, so in a twist of fate, Bill was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Bill sent messages to his coworkers saying he was trapped, and at first he was hopeful that the fire department would save him. 343 firefighters lost their lives that day, attempting to do just that. I tell you this to emphasize that each of the 2,977 people murdered on September 11th has a family, has coworkers, and friends. And for all of us in this country, there's been no justice or no accountability as yet. Bill, my sisters, and I grew up in a divided household of sorts. My mom is a Democrat and my dad's a Republican. So I feel pretty comfortable sitting here today in another divided household. This feels like my family dinner table with a few extra friends. Last week, I asked my 84-year-old father for his thoughts about the 9-11 military commissions. His reply, this is not justice. After 9-11, I co-founded September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. Each of our 260 members lost a relative of 9-11. We believe that the rule of law is a bedrock principle of our nation. And after 9-11, we expected our government to uphold the rule of law in seeking accountability for our relatives' deaths. Yet this has failed to happen. Peaceful Tomorrows obtained official observer status in the commissions because we felt it was important to bear witness not only for our loved ones, but for the outside world. So I come to the following conclusions, having observed the commissions both firsthand at Guantanamo and at family viewing sites. Five men in Guantanamo stand accused of planning and supporting the 9-11 attacks. A trial has not begun. Instead, we have heard nine and a half years of argument in pre-trial hearings. And instead of learning how and why the attacks that killed our family members were carried out, we have listened to seemingly endless litigation, largely concerned with obtaining classified information about the defendant's torture. Families have watched in frustration as one judge after another has been replaced. There is a new acting chief prosecutor, 
a soon-to-be new chief defense counsel, a new learned counsel for one of the five defendants, and numerous other changes. I've lost count of the number of convening authorities, but I know it's more than 10. In May of 2012, I sat with my dear friend Rita Lassar watching the arraignment of the 9-11 accused. Rita's brother Abe died when he stayed behind to assist a disabled coworker on the 27th floor of the North Tower. Rita is now deceased. In 2017, I was on the plane to Guantanamo with Lee Hansen, the only 9-11 family member to be deposed in the pretrial hearings. Lee Hansen lost his son, his daughter-in-law, and his granddaughter on Flight 175. Mr. Hansen is now deceased. In 2019, I was on a boat crossing Guantanamo Bay with Alice Hoagland, mother of Flight 93 hero Mark Bingham. Alice Hoagland is now deceased. The point is that family members want a measure of accountability and justice before our deaths. Today, I'm asking this commission to acknowledge that the military commissions have failed and to help us gain some form of resolution through plea agreements in the 9-11 case. We understand that in exchange for guilty pleas, the government would likely drop the death penalty. What we would hope to finally get, however, is answers to our questions about 9-11, information we've been denied for two decades. Some may not see this as justice. Indeed, it is not the outcome that our organization advocated for at our founding, but it is a way forward. 20 years ago, my people around the globe watched the towers burn. I watched my brother Bill being murdered, one agonizing moment after another. My family still does not have any of my brother's remains. So I'm asking this committee to deliver the next best thing, a resolution to the 9-11 cases that provides justice for the deaths of our family members, answers to our questions, accountability for unlawful acts, and a path to closing Guantanamo. Perhaps then this long festering collective national wound can finally begin to heal. Mr. Stimson. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and members of the committee, uh, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. My name is Charles Stimson. I'm a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, but I am testifying in my own behalf and not uh, that the Heritage Foundation, the Navy, or the Department of Defense, or any other organization. Although my views do reflect my 29 years in uniform as a defense counsel, prosecutor, and military judge, as an assistant U.S. attorney, and my time at the Pentagon as the head of detainee policy during the Bush administration. Let me say what a privilege it is to be testifying with each of the panelists here uh, today, each of whom I hold in the highest esteem, especially uh, my friend John Baker, who has given 32 years of distinguished service uh, to this country and whose written testimony I would like to associate myself with. I'd like to make five quick points. First, the United States remains in a state of armed conflict. And as such, we are entitled under domestic and international law to detain opposing enemy forces for the duration of the hostilities, including the terrorists currently at Guantanamo Bay. This is the first war in history uh, as we celebrate the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, where we've let the enemy go during the war. And because of the hard work by the Bush and Obama administrations, we know who each of the 39 detainees are, the threat that they pose, and the risk that they would uh, that we would need to accept if we decided to transfer any more of them before the conflict ends. Second, since at least 2005, the detention facility at Gitmo 
has been a safe, secure, and humane detention facility for law of war detainees and in compliance with the common Article III to the Geneva Conventions. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion and findings of both the Bush and Obama administrations. In fact, uh, when the, after the deputy head of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Alain Grenard, visited Guantanamo in 2006, he told a newspaper in Belgium the following, quote, at the level of the detention facilities, it is a model prison where people are better treated than in Belgian prisons, unquote. Now there was, as is well documented, detainee mistreatment when the facility was first opened. That was inexcusable, it was unacceptable, and not consistent with our values as Americans. But since then, detainee care and treatment has been improved, and since President Bush's second term and beyond, detainee care and treatment, including medical and dental care, nutrition, and the like, have far exceeded that required by law. Third, the President has wide discretion as the Commander-in-Chief to decide where to detain, detain opposing enemy forces, how long to detain them, and whether and when to release or transfer them during an ongoing armed conflict. It's ironic on this 80th anniversary of the attacks of Pearl Harbor that we are debating the location of where to keep enemies of the United States or whether we should even consider detaining them during an ongoing armed conflict. 21% of the detainees transferred during the Bush administration are confirmed to have re-engaged in terrorist activity, according to the DNI. Fourth, the debate over closing Guantanamo has been overtly political. The year 2009 was the most opportune time for an administration to close Guantanamo. <clears throat> President Obama won the White House, promising to close Gitmo. Democrats held a 57 to 41 majority in the United States Senate. Similarly, in the House of Representatives, the Democrats enjoyed a 257 to 178 advantage. If the president needed any legislation to close Guantanamo, which is debatable, <clears throat> or simply the political backing of the parties, the majorities of both houses of Congress, the stars were aligned <clears throat> for him to do so. But he failed in large part because some members of Congress failed to show the political courage of their own convictions, as I detailed in my written uh, testimony. Finally, I conducted the first classified study of how to close Gitmo back in 2006 when I ran detainee policy in the Bush administration. I was prepared to help close the facility then, if ordered to do so, and I would have supported its closure in a responsible way. And in fact, I spoke to the Obama Detainee Policy Task Force when they took uh, office early on and advised them how to close it responsibly. And as I detailed in my written remarks, to close Guantanamo in a responsible manner, an administration must focus on the legal, logistical, political, and diplomatic challenges as I detailed in my testimony, and then spend the political capital and show courage to get it done. Major General Michael Leonard. Chairman Durbin. Ranking Member Grassley, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you. The goal of terrorists is to change our behavior and make us live in fear. By that metric, they have accomplished their mission. Each of you will recall those terrible days after 9-11. Some of you were here. Others among you wore the uniform of your nation's military as I did. All of us felt an incredible responsibility to the American people we'd sworn to protect. Constituents demanded answers and action. I was a newly appointed Brigadier General assigned to command a force of 8,000 Marines and sailors at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, when the world changed. As we began to take captives in Afghanistan, the question about what to do with them became imperative. The Bush administration settled on Guantanamo. 
I had previously commanded a force charged with securing 18,000 Cuban and Haitian migrants at Guantanamo. Because of this background, the urgency of the situation, and the Marine Corps' ability to deploy rapidly, I was chosen to lead a joint task force to build secure facilities to hold the first 100 detainees. We received our deployment order on Friday, January 4, 2002. We were given 96 hours to deploy to Cuba and build the first 100 cells. My mission to set up Gitmo and run it until the Army could uh, take over lasted about 100 days. <clears throat> the speed of Guantanamo's creation and the urgency to gain information had bad consequences. The legal ambiguities that make Guantanamo an attractive choice for some policymakers sets up extraordinary challenges for sol soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who must execute these policies. We do not shed our oath to the Constitution or responsibility to, to adhere to U.S. laws and the international norms when we deploy. The subsequent decision to subject detainees to enhanced interrogation techniques and to avoid application of the Geneva Conventions except when it suited us, cost us international support and aided the cause of our enemies. Speaking plainly, we are here to, where we are today because of those misguided policy decisions to cast aside our values and the rule of law. I am not an attorney, but even I know that when you forego generations of legal thought and precedent, bad things happen. The vast majority of the 780 men sent to Guantanamo never should have been there. Among the 39 prisoners who remain in Guantanamo, there are some who need to pay the price for their crimes. But what we have now is not justice. There is no justice for the detainees, but more importantly, the relatives of the victims of 9-11 and of other terror attacks deserve justice, and they deserve closure, and they aren't getting it. Who gains by keeping Guantanamo open? Not America. Those who would harm us are the ones who gain. They point to the existence of Guantanamo as proof that America is not a nation of laws. They use Guantanamo as a recruiting tool. They do not want us to close Guantanamo. Some of you might be thinking, my constituents don't ever ask me about Guantanamo, and you'd be correct. Most of America has forgotten about Guantanamo. But hear me when I tell you that our enemies have not. Closing Guantanamo responsibly restores the reputation of America, ensures accountability for those who have committed crimes against us, and provides closure for the families of those they have harmed. The issue isn't whether to close Guantanamo, but how. So how do we close it? Here are some suggestions. First, make someone in the White House clearly responsible for closure and give them fin a finite period of time to make it happen. I was given 96 hours to open it. 96 days to close it seems reasonable. Whoever gets this thankless job needs to have the authority to direct the necessary elements of our government to make it happen. Second, there also needs to be a senior officer, official at the State Department in charge of negotiating transfer. More than two-thirds of the remaining de detainees, 27 of them, have not been charged with any crime. These detainees must be transferred either to their country of origin or a willing host nation. Thirteen have already been approved by transfer by our defense and intelligence agencies. Continuing to hold these uncharged detainees costs the U.S. taxpayer $13 million annually per detainee, ties up troops that could be used elsewhere, and makes a mockery of our system of justice. Let's stop admiring the admiring the problem and transfer these detainees out of Getmo without further delay. For the remaining 12 who have been charged, it is time that we recognize that the commissions have failed. I have little sympathy for these men and a great deal of empathy for their victims, 
but by any objective standard, the military commissions have failed while our federal courts have been remarkably successful, holding our enemies responsible and securing significant sentences for terrorists. The victims of these men deserve justice. They deserve closure. They do not find it through uh, military commissions, even though some very good people have tried to make them work. At this point, we must bring these cases to close through negotiated plea agreements, even if we want to see resolution in our lifetimes. It may require taking the death penalty off the table. If that is the case, so be it. A death penalty serves no useful purpose other than providing martyrs for our enemies. Again, I am not a lawyer, but I understand that plea deals could be reached within the commissions themselves or by video in federal court. In those agreements, the parties can make arrangements for where convicted defendants will serve out their sentence. Now, some of you are going to worry about that uh, the detainees who are released might turn around and try to harm us. The question of risk is real, and I acknowledge it. My life as a Marine involved managing risk, but in my view, the damage caused by continu continuing to ignore the rule of law and gifting a recruitment tool to our enemies far outweighs the risk that some of these aging and sickly detainees might one day engage in terrorism. It's hard to overstate how damaging the continued existence of Guantanamo has been to our national security and the fundamental values we stand for as a nation. Who we are cannot be separated from what we do. It is past time to close Guantanamo and reaffirm who we are as a nation. Mr. Jamil Jaffer, I hope I pronounced it correctly. Thank you, Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Grasson, members of the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to testify today and discuss the detention of terrorists at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and the current threat facing our nation from terrorists. Members of the committee, the fact of the matter is the war on terror is not over. The director of the FBI, the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, the director of national intelligence, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the commander of U.S. CENTCOM have all made that abundantly clear. Worse still, our enemies have made that abundantly clear. They continue today to plot terrorist attacks both here in the United States as well as abroad. It is in that context that we are discussing the question of what to do about the detainees remaining at Guantanamo Bay. We know today that ISIS and Al-Qaeda continue to aspire to conduct major terrorist attacks here in the homeland. To be sure, their capacity to conduct attacks, such attacks has been reduced, including over the last two years, by the sustained counterterrorism pressure that has been brought to bear by this administration and the prior administrations before it. That being said, new ungoverned spaces continue to rise in places like Afghanistan, where our precipitous withdrawal has allowed the Taliban to return to power, terrorist supporters on the Haqqani network to remain members of the government in the Taliban government, and ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan, to continue to plot terrorist attacks including the deadly attack conducting killing 13 American soldiers at Hamid Karzai International Airport earlier this year. So we know that our enemies continue to target us. We know that the war on terror continues. Question then is, what do we do about these detainees? We know also that these, deta these detainees currently remain in Guantanamo Bay. Some of them represent the most hardcore, the most committed, of the terrorists we've captured in this conflict. To be sure, these individuals have aged with time. They've been out of the fight, some for two decades. That doesn't change the fact that they represent some of the most committed terrorists out there. And this takes place also in the context of the fact that we know that individual terrorists and their release and their return to the fight can have a huge impact on the operations of terrorist networks. 
one need only look at Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which began as a cavalcade of small groups that came together under the leadership of Anwar al-Awlaki and the inspiration of Samir Khan, both Americans, who took to the fight there in Yemen and made Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula one of the most threatening terrorist groups to Americans here at home. The number of attacks that AQAP conducted both in Yemen and threatened against the United States in the aftermath of just two Americans joining the fight was, was significant. And so when we consider what to do with these detainees, continue to detain them, transfer them, plead them out or the like, the question must become what happens if eventually they do return to the battlefield. And this is not a theoretical threat. We know because of what the Officer Director of National Intelligence has told us that over the 800 detainees that have been, the 700 plus detainees that have been released from Guantanamo Bay, one third, fully one third, have returned to the fight or are suspected of having returned to the fight. So these are not theoretical questions we face. These are very real questions. To be sure, the situation at Guantanamo Bay is not ideal. It has not been ideal since the beginning. And the things that have taken place both at Guantanamo Bay and in other places during the detention, re capture, rendition, and detention of terrorist suspects have been a challenge to our nation and its character. At the same time, when we consider what to do with the remaining 39 individuals, we must ensure that the American people are fully and adequately protected. So if we think about bringing these detainees to the United States, we must ask ourselves, what rights will they gain under our laws? What opportunities will they have that they don't have today? We know that at Guantanamo Bay, the Supreme Court has said these detainees have the right to habeas corpus. But they have no other rights under our Constitution. They are foreign nationals held during an ongoing conflict. If we bring them voluntarily to the United States, there's the possibility that they'll receive significantly more rights and significantly more opportunities under our own laws. And as a result, as we think about these very hard and difficult questions, we have to consider both the individuals at Guantanamo Bay, their status, and the continued ongoing war on terror. Thank you for the opportunity to present my views. I look forward to your questions and ideas. Ms. Justin. Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Grassley, members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to address you here today. My name is Katya Justin, and I'm a lawyer at Jenner and Block in New York. I've spent my career practicing criminal law, both on the defense side and as a federal prosecutor. Through my experience as a prosecutor, I developed a deep respect for the rule of law. And there can be no serious dispute in 2021 that Guantanamo is a failure. It harms our national security, undermines the rule of law, and weakens our international standing. As the title of today's hearing correctly states, Guantanamo has produced 20 years of injustice. The military commission system is a glaring example of that injustice. The system has failed in virtually every respect. It has shamefully failed the victims of terrorism and their families. It has been 20 years since 9-11, and this chapter needs to be closed. I have spent months in the detention facility in Guantanamo. For over 10 years, I have represented Majid Khan, a man who committed serious crimes. Majid also spent years in CIA black sites and suffered unspeakable acts of violence and abuse, torture, but notwithstanding the very un-American treatment that he received at the hands of U.S. personnel, Majid determined to resolve his case in the military commissions. He took responsibility for his crimes, and he pled guilty. 
He became a cooperator and he has been assisting the United States for decades. And given his cooperation, he is to complete his military commission sentence in February of 2022 and will need to be transferred then from Guantanamo to a place and in a manner consistent with the way government, the government treats cooperators in important cases. But Majid's case charts a course here about how the government can and should resolve the remaining military commission's cases, which is a critical part of fulfilling the government's policy objective of closing Guantanamo. The remaining contested cases currently pending in the commission system are going nowhere. Let's be honest, these cases are as far from a trial now as they were when they began most many years ago. Put bluntly, the contested proceedings in the military commissions as opposed to negotiated guilty pleas are doomed to fail for at least two reasons. First, the commissions lack legal clarity. They are perpetually mired in unsettled complex legal issues that scuttle any effort to conduct trials apace. Second, there is the issue of torture and the cloak of secrecy surrounding it that the executive branch still fights to maintain. Torture infects almost every aspect of a commission's proceeding. It is the third rail in the system. The quagmire of the commissions is a miscarriage of justice for the victims of terrorism and their families like my co-panelist Colleen Kelly, who lost her brother on 9-11, and Colleen deserves better from our government. The victims and their families deserve transparency about what happened and who was involved in 9-11 for a modicum of closure. And make no mistake, unless the White House proceeds with a comprehensive Guantanamo closure policy, this quagmire will remain and the shameful status quo will continue. The commissions is merely a thin veneer of a legal process, process that serves one objective, and that is to keep the detainees under wraps so that they cannot describe what happened to them in CIA detention. And that above all else appears to be the goal of the military commissions, not truth, not justice, not accountability. They exist merely to keep the dark chapters of our recent history in the shadows and continuing to litigate the contested cases is the legal equivalent of a road to nowhere. And what of the 27 other men there who have not been charged with any crime? They need to be transferred. How can we as a nation indefinitely charge human beings with no charge and no trial for 20 years without any foreseeable end? What does this say about our adherence to democratic principles and the rule of law? In closing, I want to remember the words of Senator John McCain in 2008 when he asked a question that I ask each of you today. What is the moral superiority of the United States of America if we torture prisoners? What makes this country great, what makes me proud to be an American, is what we aspire to be. And Guantanamo falls far short of those aspirations. In reading your testimony, particularly General Baker, it, it's very clear to me what's happened. You say at one point, the military commissions have been unable to bring the men charged with the worst criminal act in the United States history to trial 20 years after the fact and 14 years after they were first charged. This alone is enough to prove that the system has failed. It seems to me that we put these prisoners, these detainees, in a black hole on an island which we could claim was not part of the territory of the United States and decided that we would treat them in some kind of unusual legal manner with these military commissions. As the testimony is made clear, that experiment failed, and you said as much, General Baker, in your opening statement. 
So General Leonard has suggested there will come a point where the best we can hope for to finally put an end to this chapter is some sort of plea negotiation in terms of the outcome and where these prisoners are held, if they're held from this point forward. General uh, Baker, would you like to comment on that suggestion? Yes, sir. I would agree that uh, the plea negotiation uh, resolution is the only way out. Um, I became the chief defense counsel in 2015. We're further from trial today than we were when I started. Uh, so the this legal quagmire, I just I don't see a way out. The status quo is not working. I'd like to ask you and General Leonard to respond to Mr. Jaffer. Is uh, any type of resolution for these detainees being held going to give aid and comfort to the enemy and put America at risk? I think that what's putting America at risk is the status quo, is, is continuing uh, down this road. General Leonard? Uh, Senator Durbin, I, I agree with General Baker. And I, I'd also add the, the point, and, and, and with respect to our minority witnesses, who I thought did a remarkable job. Uh, you know, I, ser I had held uh, 13 separate commands in 37 years. And uh, with command comes a remarkable power and authority. And one of the questions I would always ask myself is not can we do something, but should we do something? And I think in this particular case, we have a responsibility here today to ask ourselves how history is going to judge the United States in the long term. And in, in my view, it is time to close Guantanamo, sir. Ms. Justin, uh, it was an extraordinary thing when the seven of the eight jurors in your client's case uh, created this handwritten letter, which we have a copy of. Uh, can you explain the circumstances behind that? Thank you, Senator. Um, yes, at Mr. Khan's sentencing hearing that occurred this year at the end of October, Mr. Khan, through agreement with the government, was given the opportunity to speak for about two hours about what happened to him while he was in CIA custody. Um, he did so, and um, it described in a fair amount of detail what he was subjected to while in the black sites. At the end of the proceedings, the military panel of jurors was given the opportunity to not only render a decision on his sentencing, but to suggest clemency should they wish to do so. And um, they, they made that decision to do so and supplied that written clemency letter that you quoted from at the beginning of these proceedings um, at Mr. Khan's sentencing. It was remarkable to us Senator, given their position in the military uh, and given the fact that they had um, had an opportunity to hear everything at the sentencing hearing, including the entire stipulation of fact to which Mr. Khan pled guilty to and took responsibility for. So the clemency letter was delivered um, in the context of full information about the seriousness of his crimes, his contrition, his guilty plea, and then what happened to him in the CIA uh, while he was in the black sites. Thanks, Ms. Justin. Senator Grassley. My first point will be directed to Professor Jaffrey. Uh, in light of the poorly planned withdrawal from Afghanistan, administration officials have testified that a strengthened Al-Qaeda or ISA could launch attacks against us from in Afghanistan uh, as soon as six months. It's particularly important to ensure that the worst of the worst at Gitmo do not rejoin those efforts. 
The Office of uh, Director of National Intelligence has reported that nearly a third of Gitmo detainees re-engaged in terrorism. At least a dozen have launched attacks against the United States or U.S. forces in Afghanistan, killing at least a half a dozen Americans. So to you, what is the effect of Afghanistan fall to the Taliban and the creation of a safe haven in Afghanistan on the dangers of releasing uh, these detainees? Uh, thank you, Ranking Member Grassley. Uh, I think the, the situation in Afghanistan and our precipitous withdrawal, the detriment of that cannot be understated. The Taliban, who hosted Osama bin Laden on the day of the attacks, of the day of the 9-11 attacks, are now, have now returned to power. Within their ranks, the Haqqani Network, the leader of the Haqqani Network is a senior minister in their government, is the deputy head of the Taliban. They have refused to comply with all but one of the conditions in the Doha Agreement reached in order to facilitate the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan, including the condition requiring them to renounce and reject al-Qaeda. They have not done so. Worse still, ISIS Khorasan is now present. No doubt they are fighting with the Taliban for, for primacy within Afghanistan, but they are a serious terrorist group, and they are responsible for the deaths of 13 Americans at Hamid Karzai Airport. Other terrorist groups, too, are returning to Afghanistan as they see this ungoverned space as an opportunity to once again consolidate their efforts and fight against the West. They seek to conduct attacks in the United States, in Europe, and against Americans around the globe. The terrorist threat today is worse specifically because we withdrew from Afghanistan in the way and the manner in which we did. Uh, to Mr. Simpson, uh, the final report of Obama's review task force, which was completed under the direction of Assistant Attorney General Matt Olson, notes that there are many challenges to prosecuting Gitmo detainees in Article III courts. These include statutes of limitation, lack of jurisdiction at the time the offenses were committed. Of the 240 cases that the task force reviewed, only 36 were deemed suitable to investigate further for charging, and only 12 were recommended for charging uh, in either our court system or the military commissions. So to you, sir, for the remaining Gitmo detainees, is prosecution of the United States Civilian Court there an option? Thank you, Senator Grassley, for your question. Um, <clears throat> the, que the answer really is it's hard to tell from where I sit today. I mean, as Ms. Jeston and I both have had the privilege of being federal prosecutors, I'm clearly a fan of the use of federal courts in appropriate cases. Uh, and to your question, uh, Matt Olson and his team uh, scrubbed uh, the evidence available in uh, the Gitmo detainee files to assess whether, one, they were law war detainees, two, whether or not the appropriate disposition of them would be either better be done in federal district court or in military commissions. And they recommended one, you know, some for one and some for the other. The problem, Senator, is that um, these detainees were not captured in a place like in a city where there was crime scene tape and preservation of evidence and the rest of it. And so it's very likely that the evidence may not even exist to be able to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt in federal district court 
under the statutes available to even prosecute them. So although they may be and are law of war detainees, I think that the chances of their being able to be prosecuted in federal district court are, are low. Uh, Professor Jaffer, what are some of the risks of bringing getting all DDs to the United States? What could happen, for example, to their immigration status? Uh, is release in the United States even a possibility? Well, Senator Grassley, I think these are very serious questions. We don't know today what the Supreme Court would do if we were to voluntarily bring these detainees into the United States and hold them here, try them here, whether in law or detention or otherwise. We know that in a limited fashion at Guantanamo Bay, the Supreme Court has afforded certain rights to these detainees, again, foreign nationals captured in an ongoing conflict. So they may get additional rights. If we bring them to trial in federal court, as Mr. Simpson correctly pointed out, what about the Fourth Amendment? What about chain of custody? What about the rules of evidence? There are dozens and dozens of questions that attach to bring these detainees into the United States, even in law of war detention, that are unanswered. And we don't know what will happen. And it raises the question of if these detainees are tried and exonerated, what will happen to them? Will they be held then in immigration detention because they are in the U.S.'s custody but aren't entitled to stay in the United States? If so, what happens if, like at Gitmo, they're ineligible for transfer, we can't get the right security assurances, and they remain in immigration detention for a long period? Then we have the potential for the Supreme Court prior precedent to suggest they may have to be released into the United States. Now, the odds of that, to be sure, are quite low. That being said, they are not zero, given the Supreme Court's precedent on the question of detention in the United States, rights for detainees, and immigration detention. And so we have to consider those facts also as we think about what to do with these detainees and whether bringing them to the United States at this point makes good sense. Thank you. Thanks, Senator Grassley. Senator Feinstein. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I've thought a lot about Guantanamo from the time I visited. Um, I've served in my past uh, on boards that sentenced women convicted of felonies in the state of California, did that for more than five years, and sentenced a lot of people. Um, I know prisons. And when I saw Guantanamo and realized its isolation and came on the small boat to where it was, I began to understand that this was a facility that is really almost designated. I'm not have no proof of abuse. I know the statistics, but for abuse and does not really belong in the modern day criminal justice system. Um, I think the detention at Guantanamo was not thought through. It's been subject to major legal challenges and it has ultimately served as a rallying cry and recruitment tool for our adversaries. Nearly 15 years ago, I introduced the legislation calling for its closure, and it went nowhere. And I've watched it since then. The annual cost is $540 million. It's $13 million per detainee each year. And there are 39 detainees remaining. That's what this is all about today. For this modern body to support an isolated criminal justice system, in quotes, is just plain wrong. 
And I would hope that the votes are here finally to change it. I just wanted to say that because this is an aberration on the United States of America. It's not what we represent. We don't support this kind of isolation in criminal justice. And I'm grateful for the people that had the courage to come here and in many different ways say the same thing. That's all my comment. Thank you. Senator Feinstein, Senator Graham. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me set the stage as I see it. 20 years after 9-11, the Taliban are back in charge. Does everybody agree with that on the panel of Afghanistan? The Taliban now are in charge of Afghanistan. Everybody agrees. Five of the people in the Taliban government are former Gitmo detainees. The minister, uh, Deputy Minister of Defense, the Acting Minister of Borders and Tribal Affairs, the Acting Intelligence Director, the Acting Minister of Information and Culture, the new governor of the southeastern province of Host, are all former Gitmore detainees, and we're talking about releasing people. 229 of the 729 people released from Gitmo have gone back to the fight. And we're talking about releasing people. This is nuts. One thing I can say about the 39 that are at Gitmo, not one of them has attacked the United States. And if I have my way, none of them ever will. Bringing them to justice, I understand that very, very much. But here's what I have been fighting for 20 years now almost. I don't want anybody to be tortured by American military personnel or government officials or contractors because that makes the war harder to win. That's why, along with Senator McCain, myself and many of my colleagues, we fought hard to hold those accountable who lost their way. But having said that, I've never accepted the false choice of try them or release them. We're at war, General Baker. We're not fighting a crime. Do you agree with that? This is not a criminal enterprise. This is a war, and we're applying the law of war. Is that correct? Sir, what I, uh, you know, my, my sphere of influence is overseeing the military defense function. Yes. Policy decisions are decisions by... Well, let by, me just ask others. you this. But, as, as a military lawyer, does the United States have the ability to hold a member of the enemy forces as an enemy combatant under the laws of war? In certain circumstances, yes, sir. But, uh, but, but that's not what we're talking about here today. Everybody at Gitmo went through a combat status review tribunal hearing. Is that correct? Yes, sir. But what we're talking what did about... That, no, but, no. What we but, are talking about here is that these people have been determined by a process consistent with the Supreme Court determination that they are, in fact, part of the enemy force. There was a hearing held for all 39 combat status review tribunal under the law of war required by the Supreme Court, and everybody was found to be a part of the enemy force. Is that true or not, General Baker? But what we're talking about today, sir... That's, is, my question no, no, is simple. Talking, Are the people at Gitmo, have they gone through a process and been determined to be part of the enemy force? Not a process that is fair, no, sir. Well, that's your opinion. Yes, sir, it is. Thank you, Senator Graham. Senator Whitehouse. My question to our two members in uniform is, describe what symbolic 
significance Guantanamo now has as a tool for our enemies and adversaries. Uh, thank you, Senator Whitehouse. I think the best way to describe it to you is a conversation I had with a young soldier when I was down there at Guantanamo. And I would show up in the middle of the night because I wanted to make sure that we were treating the detainees properly. Uh, we did not indulge in enhanced interrogation techniques during that short period of time I was there, and I would not allow it. But this soldier asked me, young 19-year-old kid, he says, sir, why are we treating them so well? We, they wouldn't treat us that way. And I said, soldier, you are exactly right. But if we treat them as they would treat us, we become them. And I would offer that we have, during this period of 20 years, surrendered our moral authority. Sir, I agree with everything that General Leonard just said. Um, there's one point that you raised that I would like to address, and that's this, this myth out there that the FBI engaged in these clean team statements. Uh, the FBI and the CIA were involved hand and fist throughout <clears throat> all this intelligence gathering that we're learning through these hearings down at Guantanamo Bay. Um, and, uh, you know, and we're hiding all of that behind the secrecy of classified information. If we simply came clean about what was done, Ms. Justin, what would that do to the process going forward in terms of speeding things up and allowing greater clarity? Thank you, Senator. Um, in the case of my client, Mr. Khan, uh, we were able to negotiate a guilty plea whereby he agreed to um, enter his plea pursuant to a long stipulation of facts that provided the clarity and the modicum of closure that we think is appropriate for the victims of these terrorist acts. Um, so in that respect, uh, through negotiating a guilty plea, we were able to achieve some measure of clarity and closure for the victims. In terms of his torture, it was years of negotiation with the government, um, you know, at its height this year, preceding his sentencing, to enable him to give an unsworn statement that described what he was subjected to at the hands of the CIA. And for him, that was very important. Um, and for the country, it's very important to have the measure of accountability that that can bring about. Senator Cornyn. Mr. Jeffrey, you, you alluded to this, but uh, can you talk about what, we all agree that the rule of law should apply here, but can you talk about why the rule of law applies differently to a non-citizen captured in the battlefield during a war? Absolutely, thank you, Senator Cornyn. Uh, the Supreme Court has held that in an ongoing conflict, the United States can hold enemy combatants for the duration of the conflict. Now, there are debates today about with the, with the, war, the war on the battlefield in Afghanistan having come to an end with our precipitous withdrawal. Does that change things? The answer clearly is no. Joint, Chair, Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley and CENTCOM Commander General McKenzie both testified here in the Senate less than, less than two months ago that, in fact, the war on terror continues. And our enemies believe the war on terror continues. They continue to plot attacks, both here in the United States and against us and our allies around the globe. And so the war continues, and therefore the ability to detain continues. As Senator Graham correctly pointed out, if we have the ability to kill an enemy on the battlefield, is it not more humane to actually capture them and detain them, even though that detention may be indefinite? How can it be that we have the authority in an ongoing conflict to kill an enemy but not detain them for any amount of time 
It simply doesn't make sense to me. And as a result, we have to assess these Gitmo detainees in the context of whether we're going to be able to detain them for a long period. And that's the, essentially the ruling of the United States Supreme Court in the Hamdi cases and in other, other uh, cases. Is that correct? That's correct. The plurality in Hamdi plus Justice Thomas's view uh, in Hamdi. Yes, sir. What I'm trying to understand is what, what is being asked for here when people say they want to close Guantanamo in terms of the outcome for the families who lost loved ones on, uh, on 9-11. Because I heard Mr. Stinson, you and Mr. Jeffer talk about the difficulties of prosecuting these individuals in a court of law, uh, assuming you chose to do that, could do that, even though clearly the law of war allows indefinite detention, as Mr. Jeffers said, uh, for the duration of hostilities. But it seems to me that there are insurmountable problems with trying to try the, these detainees in an Article Three court. And can you explain, Mr. Stinson, your thinking about that? And also, would simply an acquittal and letting these detainees go and avoid any sort of consequences for their for their uh, terrorist acts, would that be justice in your in your opinion? Senator Cornyn, thank you for your question. Um, the argument about closing Guantanamo among the moral arguments is that if you change the zip code and move them to the United States or elsewhere, it eliminates the original sin, quote unquote. Um, and as Senator Graham pointed out, that if you don't um, deal legislatively with the issue of whether they can be detained under law of war detention and nothing more in the United States, you really don't change anything but the zip code because it's clear that our enemy is on the march. They're clearly in power in, in, in Afghanistan. And if you change the zip code only and change nothing more and prosecute those who you can in court, um, then our enemy will simply turn their ire and proxy to the new zip code. And so... Um, you know, to close Guantanamo in a responsible way, you have to deal with the fact that we are at war and that law of war detention is the guiding principle and that if you can prosecute some that can be prosecuted, do that too and then transfer the remaining if you can get adequate security assurances from the receiving country, which we haven't really gotten the best security assurances from some of the countries where we sent detainees to. That's the conundrum. Senator Blumenthal. Ms. Kelly, I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on what kind of answers you're seeking and how the overclassification and maybe the unnecessary and sometimes irresponsible use of state secrets privilege has contributed to the concealment that has really aggravated the injustice to your family. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for the question. I want to start by saying that the common ground that I've been hearing so far, and I've been listening very carefully, is adherence to the rule of law. And the common ground that I've been hearing uh, about rule of law is that the military commissions, the rules for military commissions, do allow for pretrial agreements. So one way to get to many of the answers that we're seeking and one way to get to information would be a pretrial agreement, not where people are released, but a stipulation of facts to actually what occurred. And 
Perhaps the ability of family members to ask questions, could that be written into a pre-trial agreement so we could have our questions answered? Um, the defendants would have to admit to what exactly happened and what their role was in the attacks. So I think there's a lot of large, complex questions before this committee, but I also think that there's a simple solution for the 9-11 case, and that would be pretrial agreements, understanding secrets that are long hidden, and gaining information. Do you think that that kind of information or answers would be a source of relief to the families? It's hard to imagine what the source of relief will be at this moment in time, but I would imagine feeling that I did right by my brother. I would imagine that I have, um, there'd be some resolution for my mother and father and for my children, and importantly, that there would be some sense of ending and resolution for this country, which I really believe we so desperately need. But this is who we are. This is what this country is. Um, but what we did agree on is that there's a better way. There's a better way to get to some sense of resolution. And it's gone on too long. Um, we, we all agree on that here in this, in, in this hearing as well. Thanks, Senator Blumenthal. Senator Tillis? Ms. Justin, what, did, uh, what crimes did Mr. Khan plead guilty to? Uh, Mr. Khan pled guilty to uh, several law of war crimes, including murder, spying, conspiracy. Um, Mr. Stimson, I think you mentioned when you were in the Bush administration, you looked at, uh, you were tasked with looking at the possible closure, responsible closure of uh, Guantanamo Bay. What was the ultimate conclusion there? Well, the, thank you for the question, Senator Tillis. The, 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 the hearing, well, the, the study is classified, but I categorized it in an unclassed format in my written testimony, and it fell into four categories. That number one, it can be done. And if the four categories are legal, logistical, political, and diplomatic, each of the four you have to work on simultaneously. The logistical is the easiest part. Now with 39 people, one plane load would do it if you were to take them together to one place. Uh, the legal part, you've heard several of my colleagues talk about some of the conundrums there and the difficult aspects, especially if you brought them to the United States. Many of those answers haven't been put forth in OLC or other opinions. Uh, political is tough, uh, and that has been the long pole in the tent as far as I'm concerned because I think the table was set back in the Obama administration to get it done. Um, people were for closing it until they were against it when it turned out that some it, of the Isn't it also true the table is more or less set the same way right now? The president has the authority to do it, um, and uh, there's no... Uh, no way that those of us who would oppose closing it uh, could uh, stop it here in Congress? Well, as I detailed in my written testimony, Senator, things have changed somewhat because since 2009, uh, this body and the other body across the Hill have put forth into law certain uh, notification and other requirements uh, before you transfer somebody off of the island. They're spending uh, limitations, et cetera, and so those uh, would have to be adhered to before it was closed. But yes, it's always been the prerogative of the president, whether it's President Bush or any president, uh, to close Guantanamo in a responsible way. But Congress plays an important part in that and would have to join in on that. The, um, yeah, I'm wondering when we're talking about a responsible transfer to another jurisdiction, uh, we're not being particularly successful with doing that. Uh, so isn't that a kind of a global acknowledgement. I know on the one hand we say we're suffering repu uh, reputational 
uh, damage for having Gitmo open, but the fact that we can't find other jurisdictions to responsibly relocate them almost seems like a de facto approval of this is the the, the worst option, except for all the other options that we've tried to pursue. Uh, pursue. Am I wrong about that, Mr. Joffer? Well, Senator, I think you're I think you're right in the sense that um, we can't get the right security assurances. There are a third of the detainees currently at Guantanamo Bay are. Um, are, are designated for transfer, but we can get countries to take them and give us assurances that they'll keep an eye on them and make sure they don't return to the fight. And given that we know that 30% roughly have either returned to or suspected of returning to the fight, and five, we want... And five, five are actually in the Taliban administration. Exactly right. And, and one point on that, on that, you know, those detainees who are in the Taliban administration were actually transferred in violation, GAO found, of the Congressional Prohibition on Transfer Notification under the Obama administration. They were... They were transferred in violation of the law. And then the one last thing I'd say, Senator, to your question is, you know, we've talked a lot about the reputational effects of Gitmo, and there's no question that there have been significant reputational effects. But other things have also had significant reputational effects. The way we've handled our withdrawal from Afghanistan, the abandoning of our Afghan allies who fought alongside us, right? Those have had massive reputational effects today in that ongoing ungoverned space in that battlefield. And you can be assured that our terrorist adversaries are using those facts against us today also in their recruitment efforts. Thank you all. Senator, could I add something to my answer that you asked me about yes, earlier? Yes. You asked me what Mr. Khan pled to, and, and while he pled to very serious crimes, I just think it's important to note that he uh, took responsibility for his actions, and he's been cooperating with the United States of America for over a decade and has done everything they've asked in assistance of investigations and prosecutions of folks who have been charged with terrorism. I think, I think that's a fair point uh, in representing your client, but the fact of the matter is he's responsible for murder and uh, pled to those crimes. So we're not talking about potentially innocent people of the 39 down there. We're talking about people who have done grave damage to human life, um, engaged in the battlefield, and we can't forget that that's the nature of the people that are down there and why we have to be very careful. And if Guantanamo Bay is closed. It has to be done in a responsible way. There's four administrations that haven't figured it out yet. Thank you, Senator Tillis. Senator Hirono. Could you talk about, with the other experience you've had, the time that it would be needed to reach a possible plea agreement versus the time that would be needed to complete the military commission's proceedings? I'm sorry to laugh, but that's a, that's a great question because we don't know how long it's going to take to finish these cases. There's a lot of focus is on, you know, when are the trials going to be over? That's just stage one. There's an appellate process, too. So you yeah. can add, you know, 15 to 20 years. I think a, Ms. Justin is actually probably better, uh, better positioned to answer how quickly you can reach a plea agreement because she successfully, uh, she, she successfully did so almost 10 Would years ago. Would you like ago. to add to this conversation, Ms. Justin? Thank you, Senator. Um, it really uh, is something that is, a, is possible to be accomplished if there's the will to do it. Um, in our case, uh, the military prosecutor with whom we worked was a detailed D Department of Justice national security prosecutor who had a lot of experience in Article III courts prosecuting terrorists. One thing that um, we've heard a lot, uh, a lot about during this hearing is federal court prosecution of people charged with terrorism crimes. And I'd like to just note for the record that since 9-11, over almost 1,000 cases have been indicted in the federal courts. Mm -hmm. These prosecutors are experienced and they know how to handle these cases. 
It is a very effective system. Um, and it is uh, a system that is uh, in conformance with the Constitution and follows the rule of law. And the military commission system, if there is a will to accomplish this, I would recommend to the administration that they involve DOJ and get DOJ prosecutors involved to negotiate these dispositions because I think it will move more quickly. But the bottom line, Senator, is that if there is a will, this can be done, and it can be done quickly, but there has to be the will. Is, is there anything that currently prohibits the government uh, or defense counsel from reaching a negotiated plea agreement? General Baker? Absolutely not. Nothing? Nothing. Thanks, Senator Hirono. Senator Hawley. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Can I just ask you for your view? I mean, one of the consequences of, of closing Guantanamo Bay and moving enemy combatants to the United States, and I realize that the court, the Supreme Court has found, of course, that, that uh, Gitmo itself, the, 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 the uh, prisoner's presence in Gitmo, does confer certain rights on them, particularly in the habeas context, but moving them to to the United States where there's, you don't need to have a functional balancing test. You know, it, it, it's not a sort of uh, halfway, halfway U.S. territory, halfway not. If you moved into this country, what would the effect be on their constitutional rights, particularly if you involve them in traditional court proceedings in the criminal justice system, uh, and that is not in the enemy combatant system? So I'll, maybe both of you can answer, but go ahead, Mr. Jeffrey, we'll start with you. Yeah, no, Senator Hawley, that's a, that's a great question. We don't know the exact answer. What we do know, I think, as you've, as you've correctly described, is that there's likely to be significantly more rights uh, that the detainees would have if they were brought here, even under law of war detention, than being held at Guantanamo Bay because Bermudian turned on the fact and the unique status of Guantanamo Bay, even in giving that, them that limited right to habeas. So it's highly likely that the U.S. government were voluntarily to bring these individuals into the United States, even admitting them for limited purposes, paroling them in for the purposes of, of a trial or detention, they're going to get a certain number of rights that they wouldn't have otherwise had at Guantanamo Bay. And the question is then, what scope and how broad does the Fourth Amendment attach? Does the Fifth Amendment attach? How much of it? In what context? What about the right to, to uh, you know, confront witnesses? What about the evidence brought at trial? Remember, as, as Mr. Simpson correctly described, a lot of this evidence was gathered to extent there is evidence on the battlefield. There's no chain of custody. There's not the usual things you would need in a federal trial or even in a, even in a commission's trial or other alternate procedure uh, that doesn't, that has some additional constitutional protections. And that's what's particularly problematic about bring these detainees to the United States at this point uh, in the ballgame. Very good. Mr. Stimson? The only thing I would add, Senator, is that you recall, since you've uh, waded through the Boumediene decision, which was handed down in 2008, I recall, uh, was the whole discussion by Justice Kennedy on de jure versus de facto jurisdiction. Uh, there's no doubt that once they're here in terra firma that anyone uh, will challenge all sorts of other aspects to their law of war detention, including probably bringing tort suits against people in their personal capacity. Uh, and so I don't think anyone wants to see those types of things happen. Uh, and so unless and until, for example, this body and, and the body across the, the hill came together and passed legislation to cabin uh, the rights that they would have uh, if they were brought to the United States and reaffirm the fact that they are in the law of war detention and that's the applicable law only. Uh, I think, uh, to, to Professor Jaffer's point, it's really an open question as to whether the rights would accrue to them. Let me uh, ask you this, uh, Professor Jaffer. You testified, I think, before the House Judiciary Committee subcommittee 
on Constitution, civil rights, and, and civil liberties that other concerns with civilian trials included, and I'm quoting you here, this is from about 10 years ago, the physical security of civilians living in the area, the judges and staff working on those cases, and the jurors selected for trial. Is that something, those concerns, those security concerns, is that something that we should still be concerned about in your view? Uh, absolutely. And it's not just my view. It was actually uh, Majority Leader Schumer's view at the time that the Obama administration was interested in bringing some of the 9-11 plotters, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, to New York uh, to try them. And it was, a, it was an issue hotly discussed and debated in public. And ultimately, the Obama administration decided not to do that. But these concerns about the security of individuals, if the detainees are brought to the United States, not of the detainees themselves, they're well secured, uh, but of those that support them and, 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 and their supporters in the United States, could be hugely problematic. And remember, the biggest threat to the United States today from international terrorists is homegrown violent extremists who were inspired by al-Qaeda and ISIS. Imagine if we brought their inspiration to the United States and tried them here. Uh, it could be hugely problematic. Thanks, Senator Hawley. Senator Blackburn? My question is simply this. With the 39, it's 39 detainees that are left there. So since that effort was made to close it, what has changed in regard to the danger that these 39 individuals pose to the, the United States? What has changed that would say, yes, we can uh, let these people go? We can do something different. Well, Senator Blackburn, certainly there is a process for reviewing all these detainees that the Obama administration set up through the periodic review boards. Um, and at least 13 of these detainees have been determined qualified for transfer. The issue, of course, is when you transfer them, you want to ensure that they're properly secured wherever they go. And knowing that a third of these detainees have either returned to or suspected of having returned to the fight, we want to make sure that these particular ones, um, if they do get released somewhere, are, are held under appropriate security assurances. So but, but all of these, 39, have been determined by the Obama administration to be continued to be held or tried at military commission. So nothing has made them less dangerous. That's right. Some may be able to See, transfer. And I think that gets lost in this discussion. There is nothing that says they have been rehabilitated. But there is evidence that shows that many go back That's right. to creating terror. So uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan... And then the the Taliban take uh, takeover. How does that affect these detainees? And what does that do to if they were released, their probable future? Senator, I think it's hard to understate the creation of this new ungoverned space in Afghanistan, where new terrorists are returning uh, to the fight, are are now encouraging others to come there. You've got al-Qaeda uh, returning there. You have the Taliban government, the same government uh, that, that supported and hosted Osama bin Laden on the day of 9-11 attacks. You have the Haqqani network. You have ISIS-K. So you have a very detrimental and problematic mix of terrorists in the Afghanistan region. And you have additional inspiration coming from the way in which we withdrew from Afghanistan. The fact that we abandoned our allies, the fact that we have not brought out the SIVs and the like that we made, that we made commitments to, all of that contributes to the fact that Afghanistan so is a terrible mess. the environment man. that we have created post the Afghanistan withdrawal actually encourages activity from terrorists. Absolutely. And if we release it. Okay, let me ask you um, this. The countries that have accepted transfer of some of these in the past, and Mr. Stimson, I think this is, I'm going to direct this to you. Um, 
have they been able to ensure that these individuals do not return to terrorist activity? And what kind of agreement did we have with them to get that insurance that they won't go back to creating these, these attacks? Senator, to my recollection, we've transferred detainees or released detainees to different processes from Guantanamo to 39 different countries. I could be wrong, but I think it's somewhere around that. The big three populations are the Afghans, the Saudis, and the Yemenis, but dozens of other countries, too. And in each one of those transfers, except for the, the, um, uh, the Afghans, we had negotiated on a detainee-by-detainee basis with the receiving country and sought uh, assurances that they would mitigate the threat that that particular detainee would pose. Um, and I think we've had... And I think it's important to note this is done on an individual it is. basis. It is. One at a time. Right. And we were doing that uh, in the Bush administration. Of course, the Obama administration did that as well. The Bush administration transferred or released 532 detainees. The Obama administration transferred 197 detainees. In each one of those transfer negotiations is a laborious, sometimes years-long process. And some countries are very frank with us, saying, you know, we can only detain this person for about X period of time, and then uh, we can't assure you uh, that they will be held under our domestic law. And so to, to Professor Jaffer's point, the DNI, under two successive administrations, has tracked the number of detainees who are confirmed to re-engaged and who have sus been suspected of reengaging. And I can tell you as a former prosecutor, um, I think the number's gotta be higher because you only know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. So there are so people who slip through the cracks. So these countries that agreed to take these detainees, they make a best effort and they are not always successful in that effort and the data that you have shows that, correct? Yes, the data that the DNI has. All right. Does that. So releasing these, just like the 5,000 that got released from Bagram Airfield, makes the world more contentious and more dangerous and enables the Taliban or other terrorist organizations to fill their ranks, correct? Yes. The purpose of the deten wartime detention is to shorten the war and deprive the opposing enemy forces of fighters. By resupplying them with their own fighters, the war gets worse. And the war continues. Yes. Uh, Ms. Kelly, uh, can you speak about your experience having watched over a dozen military commission proceedings, whether justice being done, and what's the best thing we can do to ensure uh, justice for Bill and those lost on 9-11? Thank you for the question. So the arraignment of the 9-11 accused happened in May of 2012, and family members are permitted to watch these hearings from several sites on the Northeast, or uh, five members, five family members are chosen by lottery to travel to Guantanamo to observe the hearings that way. Our organization applied for uh, an NGO observer status in 2015 specifically so we could send one family member to each hearing to closely observe what was happening. And through our time there, and uh, we're now uh, the high 30s, maybe even in the 40s now of how many uh, hearings have occurred, we've watched delay after delay after delay, then COVID delay and more delays. So 
Um, in 2017, we began exploring seriously what a pretrial agreement may mean. We talked to legal advisors, we talked to federal prosecutors, we've talked to people with, with legal expertise. Um, and it seems at this stage in time, we are, we are not really closer mm -hmm. in the commissions. We're still in pretrial hearings. And at this moment in time, pretrial agreement could make things happen and could bring some resolution. So that would families. bring some resolution. Absolutely. Right. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Brig Brigadier General Baker, can you speak to how concluding the military commission proceedings can be done in a way that protects the security of the American people? And do you agree with President Bush's assessment that the detention facility became a propaganda tool for our enemies? The negotiations of the pretrial agreements uh, that have been talked about uh, would be, you know, needed to be done in good faith uh, by all the parties. Uh, and there's been a demonstration that that can be done. Um, the not doing that seems to be uh, seems to be the worst possible option. Um, I do want to I want to talk a little tiny bit about the delay that you that you asked Miss Kelly about. Uh, mm -hmm. There really are three aspects that are causing uh, that are causing the delay in these proceedings. The first, and I use the acronym DID. The first is the death penalty. The death penalty is is just is just keeping these cases going on in, in what seems to be in, 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 in mm -hmm. um, The second, are, the second uh, is intrusions. There's just been a history of government intrusions into the attorney-client relationship. And the third is the discovery. Uh, over the overclassification uh, and hiding of information that we can read about in the newspapers has just, has just put, these, mm -hmm. put these cases, you know, really kind of stopped them in their tracks. Uh, but you can, we can overcome, uh, we can overcome the DID uh, acronym through negotiated plea agreements. Mm -hmm. In your testimony, you actually described several violations of attorney-client privilege, including the seizure of documents clearly marked as privilege, the placement of hidden recording devices in rooms where detainees conferred with their attorneys. What effect did these attempts, you mentioned it briefly, to violate attorney-client privilege have on your staff and other attorneys uh, serving as counsel for the detainees. It has set, I mean, these intrusions have set the hearings back literally years at a time. Um, there was a hearing uh, last month that was a closed classified hearing that, that looked at and looked into intrusions that occurred in 2017. Uh, so it's, it's delaying their procedures. Uh, and it is, uh, and, and, and we're, we're hiding secrets that we read about in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Can you please talk to us about the steps that need to occur to finally close the facility and how we as a Congress can act to ensure that it is closed in a way that maintains the security of the American people? Well, I'll, I'll be brief, Senator, but uh, first, <clears throat> put somebody in charge with the authorities to work with all of the various government agencies who have uh, actually done a pretty credible job. But there seems to be somebody within either the NSC or the White House that, that can do this. The second part, uh, and obviously I think General Baker and uh, uh, Ms. Justin have, have discussed this, is, is the, the piece of bringing in the federal courts and uh, negotiating plea agreements. And, and, I, and I do believe, I am not an attorney, but I have been told that those federal courts can still operate 
uh, on Guantanamo Bay's soil through video teleconferences and things of this nature, once we've taken the death penalty off the table. It seems to me that, uh, that the, the, the desired outcome here, particularly for the families of, of individuals like Ms. Kelly here, is to get closure. And I would offer that once we have convictions and sentences, and by the way, I have no empathy for those individuals that committed these, these horrendous crimes. If they are locked up for the rest of their lives, so be it. But let's give the families closure and let's demonstrate to the rest of the world that we use the laws to hold our criminals accountable. Senator Cruz. Uh, Professor Jaffer, is there a rough estimate of where the terrorists freed from U.S.-run facilities have gone, and, and to what extent and at what level are those numbers tracked? So, uh, Senator Cruz, uh, I think the answer is that with respect to the terrorists that we transfer to other countries, we have security assurances from those countries for some period of time. Those security assurances are not forever. Uh, as uh, Mr. Simpson correctly laid out, uh, they're negotiated typically on a one-to-one -one or, or one-to-few basis. Um, but those we have a sense of. But once they go out from those security assurances, we don't know where they are. And the others that we've released, um, we don't necessarily know where everyone ends up. What we do know uh, to a certainty is that 33%, uh, is that roughly 32%, 31 and a half, are either, have either returned to the fight, are known to have returned to the fight, or suspected of it. Those are from the Director of National Intelligence, so we know that, um, and that's a real problem. So if you think about the 700 whatever odd number of people that have been released from Gitmo, 229 have either returned to the fight or suspected of returning to the fight somewhere on the globe. Wow. Okay, final question. Of the 39 detainees that remain at Guantanamo Bay, roughly 20 are from nations without a fully functioning government. 14 of them are from Yemen, where enormous swaths of the country are ruled by terrorists. To what extent, Professor Jaffer, are such countries able to track and secure terrorists and prevent them from murdering Americans? They are not able, which is exactly why we cannot transfer to those countries. Thank you, Senator. Uh, the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, assesses that only 5%, 5 percent, 5 of detainees transferred since 2009 when current rules and processes for transfers were put in place are, quote, confirmed of re-engaging, close quote, in terrorist activities. That's 10 persons total, two of whom are now deceased, 5%, not 30%. But even that number is misleading because it only takes 51% likelihood that a detainee is subsequently engaged in terrorist activity to count them as confirmed. The claim that there is 30%, and I've heard it attributed to the DNI, which is inaccurate, the claim that there is 30% recidivism rate among former Guantanamo detainees is misleading. That number includes individuals that are merely suspected of engaging in terrorist activities, including based on a single source or hearsay. And it includes transfers that occurred before the current security arrangements used today were in place. The most recent DNI report showed that 729 detainees have been transferred out of Guantanamo since its opening. According to DNI, 125 of them were confirmed of re-engaging in terrorist activities. But the vast majority of those, 115 of 125, were transferred during the President Bush administration before today's processes were put in place. And I'd like to say a word about the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, if I recall correctly, the negotiations with the Taliban for the final withdrawal of American troops began under 
the previous administration. It was President Trump who was negotiating with the Taliban and reached an agreement which would protect the Americans and forces left in Afghanistan until a certain date. It was President Biden who inherited that negotiation. To say that there was no plan in place is to misstate the situation as it occurred. If I remember correctly, they were going through a process of uh, discussing the, uh, the evacuation of Americans and American troops when the, the government of Afghanistan left the premises and their departure created an emergency situation. What the Biden administration did do was execute a plan for evacuating 130,000 evacuees from Afghanistan in a very brief period of time. To put that in comparison, the total number of evacuees in Vietnam, 50,000. President Biden evacuated some 130,000. So that, I hope, will clear up the record a little bit in that regard. Thank you all very much for joining us today. The committee stands adjourned. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.